The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus told his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. This past week, Nick and I had the privilege to be a part of the annual clergy conference when we meet together with the clergy of the diocese and our bishops and have wonderful opportunities for worship and prayer together to uh, reestablish and, and to strengthen uh, relationships with old friends and to find new friends. And we also have the opportunity while we're there to often hear from a couple of different speakers. Well, one of the speakers that we had this year presented the results of his research, having uh, spent a, a great deal of time with former Roman Catholics who are now find themselves in the Episcopal Church. The bishop had wanted us to have a better understanding of how they see the church and some of the struggles that they have as they become a part of the Episcopal Church. I think uh, you might be surprised, as I was, to find out that in the, the area that comprises our diocese, there may be as many as 300,000 former Roman Catholics who do not worship in a church on Sunday, who are really unaffiliated. And so we're careful to speak about this, not in terms of stealing sheep, because the kingdom is not advanced by shepherds stealing sheep. But we do have an obligation, it seems, to be an open and welcoming place 
to those who might find the Episcopal Church to be the answer perhaps for a time or perhaps for a longer period of time for them as they uh, continue on their spiritual journey. I was also quite surprised as people talked about, as priests talked about the number of Roman Catholics that they sensed that they had in their congregations. And one woman uh, stood up, a priest uh, south of Boston, in an area that's predominantly Roman Catholic, and she said, I think I have at least 60% of my congregants are former Roman Catholics. I think that this bodes well for our church in terms of the new life that comes in when people come. And I know that in our own church, many of the younger families that have come to this parish over the last couple of years are former Roman Catholics. So we have a responsibility, I think, to understand where they're coming from, what they struggle with, and how we may help them as they continue on their spiritual journey. One of the things that I was uh, particularly uh, troubled by was that one of the findings was that uh, Roman Catholics, and I would guess this is not uh, exclusive to former Roman Catholics, when people come to the Episcopal Church, they find themselves wondering, what is it that these people really believe? Now, I have some idea of why people have difficulty finding what it is at the core of our belief. For one thing, we are a tradition which uh, broadly accepts both uh, Reformed and Catholic teachings because our tradition out of the English Reformation embraced both the aspects of the Reformation and continuing aspects of the Catholic Church. Which, why for some of us, we don't necessarily see ourselves as Protestants in the usual sense of the word, but rather as Anglicans, as people of the middle way that brings together both Catholic aspects and Reformation aspects. This has uh, sometimes been referred to as Anglican comprehensiveness. And it's really at the heart of some of the struggle that's going on in the Anglican communion today. The other thing that I would say is that we are less doctrinal uh, than other denominations find themselves. I would, uh, one of the common sayings is, if you want to know what we believe, come and worship with us. And we say that because we believe that our prayer, praying, shapes believing. How we pray, what we pray, shapes how we believe and what we believe. I would also encourage those who are perhaps new to the church and perhaps even more especially those of us who have been a part of the church for a long time to uh, crack open the prayer book someday to page 845 and there you will find our catechism. Uh, it's, it's entitled An Outline of the Faith. Uh, and also uh, another interesting part of the prayer book follows that immediately. It's the historical documents. And I find that they come in particularly handy during very boring sermons. You can read through the historical documents. So I think it is possible for us to point to things and say this is what we believe. And certainly the catechism, the outline of the faith and the prayer book is part of that. But I believe also that we have perhaps failed in holding up those aspects of Christianity that are central to Christianity and which we also think are central and understand to be central to who we are as Episcopalians. And I hope to do that this morning as we uh, consider the gospel that was just read. 
And as we begin that, I would like for you to take just a moment and think what picture, what metaphor comes to mind as a way of expressing the Christian life as you understand it. What, what is it that, that pops out for you as a metaphor? What image comes to mind? Many images, I'm sure, have come to mind, and I would love to hear what people have uh, thought of. But unfortunately, I think that the image that has prevailed for centuries in the church and not in any one particular part of the church is the idea that, that what we come to church for, the Christian life, is really to get the ticket that gets us into paradise. It's getting entree into one of the rooms in the mansion. I think that's what a lot of people see as why they come to church. It is a way of of assuring themselves that it's going to be all right at the destination. But what I think we hear Jesus talking about in this passage today is about the journey and the destination, but especially the journey. Because it seems to me that the, the heart of the Christian life, the, the, what we need to understand as Christians is that the Christian life is something that's lived now. It's not something that we wait for in the by and by. It is here now for us to live into. Now, that passage that we heard from John at the very beginning of it, I'm sure with all the funerals that we have had of late and the many funerals we've all attended over the years, we've heard that beginning section over and over again. I said to uh, one of the, to the Eucharistic minister at the eight o'clock service, I almost know it by heart. I have heard it so many times. But I think we've tended not to unpack it too much, and it's hard to do, especially at a funeral service. But we've not unpacked the part where Jesus talks about being where he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then we're especially troubled, I think, by what immediately follows. No one comes to the father except by me. I think it's helpful for us to first address that so we can kind of set that aside. Keep in mind that when this gospel was being written, that it was in a time when there was not a lot of religious diversity. So that wouldn't have been something uppermost in the minds of those who were collecting these stories and bringing all of this together. They weren't concerned particularly about how they were living with people of different faith and certainly not about how they might be inclusive of people of different faith. Also, I think it's important if you reread that passage, you will see that it is talking about relationship and the relationship that's being held up is the relationship between these people gathered with Jesus the night before he is he is taken captive and will die the Last Supper. Those people and him and the relationship that he has with God and you hear over and over again in it. I and the Father are one, and in other places in the Gospels, I am in you and you are in me. The destination that Jesus seems to be pointing to is the destination of being in him, of living in him, being an embodiment, in a sense, of him, as he is an embodiment of God. So I think it's very important for us to, to acknowledge that that saying of no one comes to the father except by me is for the disciples to recognize that this is about a very, very important relationship 
that he has with them and in turn that they have with God. Now, these, uh, this I am statement that we have where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Paul Tillich has come up already at the uh, at the forum, uh, quoted greatly, and I'm quoting Tillich this morning too. So I think I need to get out more Tillich books because obviously it's being brought before me. Paul Tillich, in his collection of sermons, is titled "The New Being," talks about the idea of truth, and he he tells us that uh, truth was became a prominent concept in the Greek mind and in the Greek world, and he says that. John's gospel is a Christian answer to the question, the question that Pilate had as well, what is truth? Tillich says John's answer to that is that truth is found in a person. Truth is found embodied. That is, the truth is found embodied. That, I think, is hard for us to grasp. It's difficult because we tend to look for truth in writings of doctrine. We look for truth in proclamations of the church, whatever that church might be. We look for truth in whatever source we can find it that seems to be outside of us. And we point to that and we declare it the truth. Very early on, it seems that the church, the early church, moved away from this emphasis on the relationship and being in Christ and embodying truth in that way and starting to define itself over against the heresies and all of these various ways that they saw as untruth. And then over time, this became doctrine, became set in stone. And not only was it guidance for the people, but soon, especially we see in the Inquisition, it's used as, as, a, as a way of beating down the people. And what had started as something merely to define ourselves more clearly became something that one must believe in order to be a Christian. Tillich also talks about this. He's reflecting on on the fact that Jesus says the truth shall set you free. He says there is not freedom, but dynamic bondage where one's own truth is called the ultimate truth. For this is an attempt to be like God, an attempt which is made in the name of God. And how often the church in the name of God, has declared what it believes to be the ultimate truth. I think that Jesus is calling his disciples, then and now, you and me, to a very different understanding of what it is to be a Christian. It is not about, I believe, it is not about being a member of a particular church. It is not about raising your hand and saying you believe a certain set of things. It is not about saying that you believe in a certain doctrine of a particular church. It is about living the life of Christ. Living with the one, walking with the one on the journey who says that I am the truth. I think that is where we find life. We heard it this morning as both we sang and, and, and we heard read this account of Stephen's uh, martyrdom. We're not all called to be martyrs, but we are all called to be faithful Christians. And like Stephen, we are called to walk that journey, wherever that journey might take us. And it was striking to me to hear again this account of Stephen's last words. 
where, first of all, he just offers himself to God. And then, as he's dying, he prays that God will not hold what has been done to him against those who have thrown the stones. It is as though Christ himself were speaking. I think one could say that Christ was in him and he was in Christ. That is the Christian life. We are all called to that. We are all called to live the truth, to walk the way of the Christ. And that is where we find eternity. We find it now as we live knowing that Christ walks with us. Amen.